Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Nikita Hayden is a research fellow in CEDAR at the University of Warwick. She's also a research associate for the UK charity SIPS, and her PhD research was entitled Siblings of Children and Adults with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, Psychological Outcomes and Sibling Relationships. And that's why you're here today to talk to me, Nikita. So you're very, very welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be talking to you today about siblings. Well, one of the reasons why your research came to our attention was we had a parent ask us about sibling support for a child whose sibling had autism. So that's how we started digging around in this area. We came across this wonderful bank of work that you had done on the sibling relationship. Tell us a little bit about how you came to that particular field. Yeah, so I myself would identify as a sibling. So I have an autistic brother. He's now 24 years old and growing up with him and and having experiences of being a family member of someone with a developmental disability like autism and noticing things about my family that were different to other families, noticing the stress that my mum was under often, trying to fight against support systems and schools to try to get my brother the support he needed and is frankly entitled to. And then kind of watching him transition into a sort of young man and having difficulty with services, kind of stopping in adulthood, it's made me really, really interested in disability and really, really interested in families of disabled people and carers of disabled people. So when this sort of PhD opportunity came up, it's something that, that seemed a really good fit. And it's something I'm continuing to work on now as a postdoc as well. So when did you finish your PhD? I submitted in 2020. So yeah, it's been about a year and a half since I've had my Viva and, and everything. I graduated on Sunday, which is very exciting. So yeah, it's been a little while now since I finished. And before we get into the, the main questions, were your family not incredibly proud of you that you, you're making such a contribution to this field? Yeah, no, certainly. My mum's super, super proud. I was the first person in my family to go to university. So to go on and do a PhD was, it was, it was a big deal in my family. And my younger brother, my autistic brother, he's especially proud like I remember I was having some conversations where he was like even if you don't finish I'm so proud of you for trying and and then he came to my graduation as well and apparently when when it came to my moment to go on the stage he's there alone standing up like clapping away so yeah he's certainly really really proud of me my family my mom especially are as well so and of course he's so much he's a part of this research he's he's contributed hasn't he completely yeah he certainly influenced my thinking on the subject matter. And I'd certainly say as well, my experience of having an autistic brother has meant, it's meant that the kind of conversations I get to have with sibling participants are different to the kind of conversations that a researcher would get to have if they didn't have that personal experience. That's right. So your research is so much richer for your lived experience. And I think it's nice to know that, you know, you your heart and soul is in this work. 
So it's lovely to read. And there's so much to cover. But I wanted to talk about the fact that we know that with siblings generally, having a positive relationship is a protective factor when it comes to children's mental health and well-being. However, from reading your work, I've learned that research on the outcomes of siblings who have a brother or sister with an intellectual neurodevelopmental disability shows mixed and sometimes contradictory results. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a huge amount of variance in studies in this area. And we've got studies that show quite big differences. And then we've got studies that show no differences. And it's likely to do with a lot of problems that we have in our in our field of research in terms of how we design them. So sort of less robust studies, if you like. So for example, a lot of them use small samples, and then they they get their participants through support services. And those siblings don't represent all siblings. So we know that loads and loads of siblings never, ever access support services because they don't feel like they need them. And so our research tends to disproportionately get the voices in of people who identify as siblings and see it as a really big part of their life rather than siblings generally. So if we wanted to think about kind of psychological, behavioural and educational outcomes, I like to look at population level data wherever possible. So that data is representative of a certain population and it involves all of those siblings that that wouldn't take part in research if you just put an advert on Twitter, for example. So it's much more representative. And um, the results still vary between those studies. So in terms of psychological outcomes, there was a study done in 2019 by Marquis et al. in Canada, and they found that siblings were at greater odds of depression and other mental health problems compared to siblings of people without disabilities. They also found that things like the sex of both the children, the type of disability, birth order and income were all associated with these psychological outcomes. My first PhD study was also a population level study that looked at behavioural outcomes. And we found that older siblings of children with learning disabilities were at 1.5 to two times more likely to experience worse outcomes on behavioural and emotional problems compared to older siblings of children without learning disabilities. But then we found that once we were controlling things for like maternal mental distress, for socioeconomic position, being from a single parent household, the behaviours of the child with learning disability, we found that those factors were all explaining those differences much better than just the fact that there was a, there was a child in the family that had a learning disability. And then for educational outcomes, we don't have data at population level about siblings of children with learning or developmental disabilities like autism specifically. But we do have a general study by Gudi et al. using US population level data that tells us about siblings of children with disabilities more generally. And they found that siblings of disabled children broadly were more likely to be experiencing problems with functioning at school, problem behaviour at school, and problems completing schoolwork. And I think Gudi et al. generally found quite big differences across various different measures, including behavioural outcomes as well. And then in terms of like autism specific stuff, educational outcomes, there's a study recently done by Gregory et al, 2020, and they did a small scale study about siblings, educational outcomes, siblings of children with autism. And they found that these siblings were self-reported lower levels of school belonging and lower levels of academic self-concept. So essentially feeling kind of confident in their academic abilities compared to other adolescents. So the picture there doesn't it looks a little bit negative. I think it's important to highlight that there are other variables explaining some of these outcomes, especially for my study, um, Hayden et al., where we found that socioeconomic position was really explaining 
a lot of it. So families experiencing poverty was associated with these poorer outcomes. It's also worth highlighting that not all siblings are experiencing worse outcomes. So even if we say siblings on average are experiencing worse outcomes than the general population, that still tells us from looking at the data, like 80, 85% of siblings are doing fine. So we probably need to think about supporting siblings that need it rather than siblings across the board because the data doesn't support that. That's right. So if you're a parent listening to this in this particular circumstance and you're, the sibling is doing well, seems happy, thriving at school, there's, there's nothing particularly to be concerned about. It's just that it's more interesting, in fact, what the other circumstances are and how what you're making me think about is the level of support that parents need when they're in situations of poverty or they, they you know, what can we can do to build parental capacity almost that will have an effect. It's not the child who has the neurodevelopmental disability that's the issue in terms of impact. It's the support level that the parent receives potentially. Yeah, certainly. I think there's there's a lot more that we can be doing at a structural level to support siblings. So we tend to, as researchers, focus on psychological problems and outcomes. I suppose it's easier to tackle because you could have a family in front of you and do some things to support them. But the issue is, is that siblings are in a family where they're stressed because there's usually, they're more likely to be experiencing poverty, families of children with learning disabilities, for example. And we know that benefits aren't sufficient because we've got a lot of people in the UK experiencing poverty, for example. And schools are underfunded and these children need extra support in schools and, and a source of stress for a lot of parents is getting the support needed for their disabled child in school. So there are certainly some structural things that we need to sort of campaign for and work towards as well as things happening at the family level. So let's talk about what the research says about the benefits of having siblings with a developmental or intellectual disability. I think it's nice to, I mean, you've already described how what a dynamic and rich learning experience it's been for you and it's obvious that you have a positive relationship with your sibling Mm -hmm. but tell us a little bit more about what we know from the research about that relationship. So the research that there has been some positive outcomes reported however it's an area that's quite weak in the sibling research so there's not a huge amount of quantitative studies that have examined positive outcomes or and, and then there's also not a huge amount of comparisons between siblings and the general population on positive outcomes. What we can say is that in a lot of qualitative studies, they do focus more on positive aspects. So qualitative studies are studies that usually involve talking to siblings or observing siblings. It's unclear whether this is a conscious decision of the researchers to ask about positive experiences or it's because these types of studies give siblings the freedom to talk about things more openly and they get a chance to say what they want to about being a sibling. And this is where siblings are sharing a lot of positive experiences. There's also been some small scale studies that are focused on resilience. And there are studies that have shown that resilience in siblings has been associated with better psychological outcomes. There's also studies that have sort of seen siblings self-report things like higher self-esteem, a growth mindset, siblings knowing about disability and feeling like they're an advocate about disability and siblings self-reporting things like empathy and understanding differences and having compassion, being more responsible and aware of injustices in the world. So there are a lot of sort of uh, self-reported aspects and siblings often acknowledge positive aspects about being a sibling, someone with a learning disability or a developmental disability like autism. And 
the research is lacking because we don't really know how this compares to other adults or other children. But in some ways, maybe that doesn't matter so much because if siblings themselves feel positive about their experiences, then why would you need to compare it to a general population to tell them that they're, they're wrong about that self-reported belief that they're more compassionate or more empathetic because they have a brother or sister with a learning disability? So, yeah, there are some positive things, but I think as researchers, we could be doing a better job to capture some of these positive aspects as well. So Nikita, tell us about the other factors around family life and experiences that can influence outcomes. What else is going on within those family networks that can be protective factors in terms of sibling resilience? So I think it's really important to think about things from a family systems perspective. And I'm sure that you've talked about this in your podcast before. I've listened to a few episodes and have heard it talked about before, but family systems perspectives, basically think about the way that no member of the family works in isolation. They're linked to one another. So if you've got some stress experienced by one person in the family, that might have an impact on other people in the family. And so it allows us to focus on on relationships. It allows us to think about the outcomes of other people in the family. And you can see when you've got someone in the family with a disability, family systems perspectives might help us to understand why other people in the family might be worthy of study or important to study and understand. So linked to kind of family systems perspective, things like mental distress of a parent, especially the mum, it's consistently associated with outcomes of the sibling. So this might be related to things like a parent who stress might parent in ways that are not as effective, or it could be that a mum's distressed, they're less likely to be able to give the time that siblings need, or that siblings absorb some of these feelings and also feel some stress. So for example, in my population level study data in 2019, Hayden et al, we found that mental distress was an important predictor of siblings' outcomes, more important than the sibling having a learning disability. What we also found, though, is if the sibling with a learning disability had some challenging behaviours themselves, that was also associated with worse outcomes for siblings. So we know that behaviours, emotions of other people in the family are associated with siblings' outcomes. We've also talked about already socioeconomic position and poverty and those are, again, consistently associated with worse outcomes for siblings if the family are experiencing poverty. And that's general, isn't it? Because we know across society that poverty is associated with worse outcomes in people. And then we also have seen sort of the usual things studied in the sibling outcome research, things like age, gender, birth order, being the same or the different gender of your sibling. And we end up in controlling for these a lot in our models because it's, it's very much expected in sibling research. However, these associations aren't consistent. So sometimes you'll find that things are worse for, for male siblings, sometimes worse for female siblings, sometimes birth orders significant in a model, sometimes it's not. And so it's hard to comment on because they vary so much. But we continue to control for them because I guess from developmental perspectives, we would expect some of these things to be important sometimes. So we, we do continue to control for them in models. And then you asked about maybe factors that might be protective. So obviously being middle class is protective because there's some financial resources that mean less stress in the family. It might be easier as well to spend time with a child and do something they enjoy if you've got the money to be able to take them on a day trip and you know, give the sibling that kind of time together. But we do sometimes see in the, in the research as well that having a brother or sister with Down syndrome can be particularly positive. So it's, it's not always the case in all studies, but there's something called the Down syndrome advantage, which we basically is where we've noticed in research that family members of disabled people seem to fare a little bit better than other families. This might be related to how people with Down syndrome often have really quite developed prosocial behaviours. 
So they'll tend to be quite warm and affectionate. And that might be a positive thing for siblings and for parents as well. But it might also be related to the fact that people with Down syndrome are diagnosed with Down syndrome usually within the the first day or two they're born and often now before they're born. And so they're able to get support really, really quickly. They're also a really large group of families of people with Down syndrome. And so families of people with Down syndrome have done a really, really great job of advocating and campaigning and politicising the support needs of people with Down syndrome. And because they're such a big group, they've been able to advocate for earlier support. And there's also a sense that people with Down syndrome, if you're walking in the park with someone in the family with Down syndrome, then people around in the community can see that that child has Down syndrome. And so if that child with Down syndrome then has a meltdown, for example, people around are going to be a lot more compassionate, hopefully, and supportive than what's experienced by a lot of families of children with autism, for example, where people can be a lot more unkind, I think, because it's not obvious that that child has a disability compared to other disabilities. So there are lots of reasons, I think, why families of children with Down syndrome might be experiencing better outcomes in some studies. I'm just thinking about reflecting on the sort of the media contribution to raising awareness of certain disabilities and conditions. So for example, there are now all sorts of programs on television raising awareness of particular conditions, which may or may not be helpful in making people aware of hidden disabilities and to be much more compassionate about people we come across. What's your sort of view on that? So I think I have done a little bit of work thinking about fiction in particular and how autistic people are portrayed in in fiction and learning disabilities as well. And I think media, both fiction and and non-fiction media, has a a huge, powerful part in how we see society. There's an argument, of course, that media and fiction reflects how we see society, but there's also an argument that fiction and media has a role to play in challenging and, and adapting our views on, on things like disability. So I think it, it can be done well and can really heighten our awareness and compassion for certain conditions. But then there's also a sense that they can play into quite stereotypical narratives and we see that quite a lot with autism where you you tend to see a lot more accounts of boys usually with kind of stereotypical autism interests things that are quite technical and engineering based and that can is probably why we're seeing girls being diagnosed so much later than boys because girls being hyper focused for example on bands in in their adolescence is seen as normal teenage girl behaviour when actually it can be a special interest for an autistic girl, for example. So, yeah, certainly media has a huge role to play and is influencing how we understand and see disability. And that can be a good thing and a bad thing, of course, like, like everything. So in terms of the sibling relationship and being able to, as a parent listening to this, promote positive relationships between siblings in these circumstances, Let's talk about what that could look like. You can obviously understand based on your own experience, it's not always easy being the sibling. You have to explain things to other people in the playground or people might ask you questions or you might have to manage and support your sibling in public, which can be quite difficult. Let's talk about how the parent can help that relationship be as positive as possible. Yeah, so I think think with that relationship, 
I've got a study under review at the moment that, that looked at sibling relationships. And uh, what we found is that birth order was quite an important indicator of how we might go and support sibling relationships. So what we found was that where the non-disabled sibling was older, there was less conflict in the relationship, which is great, but there was also less warmth. So what we're probably seeing there is less contact and less time spent together. And then where the non-disabled sibling was younger, we saw more warmth. And that's probably because developmentally, um, they're able to find more things that they both enjoy. But we also saw more conflict. And so if I was thinking about how to support siblings and trying to give advice to parents about how to support siblings, I'd probably think about, you know, what can we do to enhance the closeness and, and time spent together between older siblings and their brother or sister with learning disability or autism or developmental disability. So finding things that they can both enjoy to do together. And that, that can be something that's really, really challenging. But there are things that lots of children will enjoy doing, whether it's playing computer games, whether it's going for walks. They don't, they don't have to be these really expensive things, for example. And then when the typically developing sibling is younger than their brother or sister with a learning or developmental disability, I'd want to think about how we could enhance or reduce the amount of conflict in their relationship. And that could be done by helping not just the sibling, but their brother or sister with a learning disability or developmental disability, how to manage conflict and how to talk through things rather than use physical violence. And there are various interventions that have been developed and that are evidence-based that parents can tap into that are for typically developing children as well as children with developmental disabilities. So we don't necessarily need to look at the sibling-specific literature. There's other literature that we can draw upon for helping parents to reduce conflict in, in relationships like that. That's right. So that's about conflict resolution mediation techniques in general and making sure we don't always sort of take one side, that we're listening to both parties. There's some sort of structure to the way in which we resolve family conflict in that way. Yeah, certainly. And I think as well, as researchers, we can often position our studies so we almost put the blame on the child with learning disability if there's an issue in a relationship. And then what parents can sometimes do is, is put the responsibility on the typically developing sibling to not argue with their brother or sister. And I certainly remember that with my brother. If I was arguing with him, I'd you know be asked to stop. But with my sisters, I was allowed to argue a little bit more freely. And it felt strange to me that I'd have to treat him differently to how I treat my sisters. And that can obviously lead in some circumstances to feelings of great frustration or even resentment towards a sibling. Yeah, that certainly can be the case. And talking to adult siblings, that's something that sometimes they reflect upon it in, as a child is that they got treated very, very differently and it was really hard for them to, to understand. I think that's common in the typically developing kind of sibling area as well, where it's hard to teach children that it's not unfair to treat children unequally. And that might be related to their age, but in this case, it's related to one of them having a learning disability or developmental disability, having different needs. And I don't know, I suppose, I'm thinking about my family experience in particular. My brother had a really hard time at school, and I think that's very common in autistic children, not just from his peers, but from teachers as well. And so if, if he came home from school and I got in an argument with him, my mum was like, he's having a rubbish time at school. He doesn't need to have a rubbish time at home. And there was this very much coming from my mum, this, this sense of protectiveness. And I think she was able to explain it to me in a way that I, that I understood. But it did take some time and it did feel strange, certainly. 
Now, what about schools? You know, in one of your papers, you note a scattergun approach to supporting siblings is not only impractical in a context where social and charitable funding is limited, but may not be desired as we would want to avoid an unsubstantiated negative narrative that all siblings need intervention. A focused approach to sibling supports may be more appropriate. How do you think schools can help identify a sibling who does need a little bit of support? So I think the first step for schools would be to identify all the siblings in their school who have a brother or sister with a special educational need or disability. So this could be in their intake form, they add a question where they find out if that child is a sibling. And I think a lot of schools have already adopted it for if they're a young carer, but it's worth maybe following that up and getting a sense of, and also are they a sibling? And then are they a young carer for that sibling or is it for a parent? And SIBs actually have a a wording they've developed in partnership with schools on their website. So you so can get... SIBS is actually a charity, which I'd never heard of before. So this yeah. is brilliant. So tell us about SIBS and what they actually do in general. Yeah, so SIBS is a UK-based charity and they are the only charity in the UK whose sole mission, their sole job is to support siblings of disabled people. And so that includes all disabilities. It includes chronic health conditions. They've also started to do some support for bereaved siblings as well, and it involves children and adults. And they'll offer support to kids and adults who are siblings themselves, but they'll also talk to parents and schools as well. So they'll often have people that will call their hotline and want to find out, you know, I've got this particular kid in my school and this is the profile. Can you give me some advice on how I might support them? So yeah, SIBS did pay for some of my PhD, but even so, believe me when I say they're a fantastic charity. They've got great people working with them and a lot of them are siblings themselves. So they have that personal experience, which I think really helps. So incredibly exciting to find out about them. And you worked with them on a one-to-one school-based intervention. So tell us a little bit about that and the impact that it had. Yeah, so this intervention was called SIBS Talk. It's still available for you to, you know, for schools to get involved in via the SIBS website. And it's a one-to-one manualised intervention for staff to deliver with siblings in primary schools. And we did a small-scale pilot of it with 55 children from 11 schools. And the initial findings of that were promising. Children's scores improved on several of the behavioural and emotional subscores. So this kind of tells us that for those 55 children, at least, it, it seemed to be positive for them. Now, SIBS continues to offer SIBS Talk and training to deliver SIBS Talk to schools. And I think there's a small fee now that we've moved past that bit of the research. And we've also seen researcher practitioners from other countries like Japan show interest in getting trained up on it as well. It's been a little bit disappointing, though, because when we were collecting the data for the study in 2016, 2017, there was this new hit of cuts in schools that seemed to hit in particular extra staff like teaching assistants. And those were the people that were a lot of those people were the ones that were leading the intervention. And so schools haven't been able to pick up on this one-to-one aspect of it. So I'd say if you're a school and you you do have the time and you do think it's worthwhile for some of your siblings to do this one-to-one aspect, then get in touch with SIBS and get involved in it. But for schools that think, I don't think I can sell it to the senior leadership team to get that one-to-one time, then I might suggest doing things like, first of all, like I mentioned, identifying who's a sibling And then maybe doing some work to look at your data on attainment for siblings, compare that to the other children, seeing whether there's any that need some extra support. You can also do things like download the strengths and difficulties questionnaire. That is just one page and you can get a pupil to do it themselves, a parent to do it or a teacher to do it. And you can get a child to fill that in 
or a teacher to fill that in. And then you can see whether there are any areas on the outcomes that kids are maybe struggling with. And what the strengths and difficulties questionnaire also has is population norms. So you're able to compare that child's score to the average score in the UK for their age group, for their gender. So that's available for free on the Strengths and Difficulties Questionnaire website. You can just Google that and download it. And I would just say that if you're going to be going to find out whether siblings are experiencing worse outcomes, it's important to then do something to support them. So if you don't have the school staff time at the moment in this political climate to do one-to-one interventions, then maybe think about whether someone in your school is willing to get trained up to do a sibling group. So SIBs do training for people that want to do sibling groups. And you could then maybe do an hour or two a month with a larger group of siblings and get them a chance to talk to each other and and whatnot. And parents can also train up to do that and lead groups as well themselves. So that's also an option that's less time intensive. And you can imagine the power of feeling you know, you're not alone with these issues. And you're just hearing that other people, other pupils are in those positions is incredibly enriching and helpful. So it's really, really exciting to learn about SIBs. Given your vast knowledge, are there any other resources, books, websites, anything on this topic that any parent, carer or educational professional could benefit from knowing about Nikita? So I do wish there was more. But what I would say to start off with is that the SIBS website is very, very comprehensive. So they have resources for parents, as I mentioned, child siblings, adult siblings, schools. And so with tips for how to like talk to siblings, they have they have lots. So they'll have information about how to listen to siblings talk about problems, about being a brother or sister of someone with a disability. And that can be really hard for parents because they want to be protective of their child with a learning disability or developmental disability. And so they give tips on how to have those conversations, how to spend time with the child alone and what you can be doing with them and how you can be having those discussions, how you could talk to a child about disability and equip them to learn more about that. And that can be very useful for siblings then being able to have a social script for explaining precisely, things. Precisely, with their friends and with people they go and meet in the community as well. So parents and schools can also speak to SIBS advisors and discuss more specific problems. And what we also find is that a lot of specific disability organisations also have some brief resources for siblings. So autism organisations in particular, some of them even organise some sibling groups for autism-only siblings. And these resources can probably be quite helpful when the child's first diagnosed because SIBS gives this general information. But an autism or Down syndrome or cerebral palsy society sibling leaflet will explain what cerebral palsy is, what autism is, in a way that's sort of user-friendly for a child or developmentally appropriate for a child as young as a primary school kid. So going straight to those charities that represent a child with learning disability or developmental disability can also be a useful starting point as well. And I just say as well that SIBS also has a good sense of what sibling support groups are running. So they might be able to help families find some. And then there are some interventions that sort of are in the research, like SIBS Talk, for example. But a lot of these they don't necessarily get the funding to keep going after the research is done. So like I said, I wish there was a lot more. And I think that as sort of families of disabled people, we probably need to think about ways that we can do grassroots stuff. So whether that's getting trained up ourselves in leading support groups and leading events and doing advocacy work and campaigning work. But I think there's more to be done in that kind of aspect because there's not necessarily enough support coming top down from the government. 
There seems to be a lot of support online as well. There yeah. are lots of support groups for parents and carers on Facebook, on, you know, I think there seem to be a lot of expertise about around what works, what helps within those groups as well. Yeah, certainly. So social media groups do provide that kind of contact and peer support. Parents have to become experts when their child has a disability, because if they don't become experts, it's very hard to access the support needed to give their children a good quality of life. And so what we tend to find is that in all of these charities, grassroots organisations, researchers, they're just full of parents and they're full of siblings. So these supports are all being driven by a lot of and, and autistic people themselves and people with disabilities themselves as well. That 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 can't be forgotten as well. So you're doing a huge amount at the moment in terms of current projects. So pick out a few that you're really excited about that would be very relevant to the rest of us. What can we look forward to in terms of your own work and projects? So at the moment, I'm just trying to like publish for my PhD a lot. And I've got some leftover data and things like that that I need to make sure I get out into the world. In terms of postdoc work, I've got a postdoc that's more about families of children at risk of criminal exploitation. But in terms of learning disability, I'm working on a mindfulness intervention plus peer mentoring for family carers of people with learning disabilities. So that's parents and adult siblings that are getting involved in that. And then at the moment, I'm starting a couple of other sibling projects. So one's like a translation of a sibling relationship measure. So in our research at the moment, we're using sibling relationship measures that were developed for relationships where both haven't got a disability and then we're trying to apply them to to sibling relationships where one of them may not be verbal and so the the children and the adults have real difficulty filling that in so I'm I'm looking at can we do some specific measures for for understanding that and, and translating ones that already exist in other languages and then I'm also doing a study that is interviewing both the child with a moderate to severe learning disability and the child without a disability about their sibling relationships. And so I've got that data now, I've got to now analyse it. And that's really, really exciting because a lot of the research in sibling studies sort of excludes the person with learning disability. And it's for practical reasons. It's really, really hard to interview somebody who's nonverbal, for example, but it's obviously mirroring the way that disabled people are excluded in society. So it's, it's really problematic. So I'm really excited to be able to collect that data and be able to sort of push the boundary for I suppose, including people with more severe learning disabilities in research. So that's something I'm really excited about getting finished up and published and stuff. And what's exciting is that you're really modernizing some of those methodologies within the research. <laughs> you know, you, and I think your lived experience can come into that so much. It's all the richer, isn't it, because of it? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I certainly think I did tell all of the children that I interviewed, for example, that I was a sibling. And it was really interesting because it certainly helped. But also it was interesting because there were still boundaries. So I remember going in and interviewing one family where there was a younger sibling that was too young to be interviewed. And as soon as I arrived, he started telling me all the good things about having a brother who's autistic with a learning disability and you know, I get to skip the lines at Disney World and he's the best, he's really fun. And then when I got to interview his sister, at the end, when I built a bit of trust with her, she was telling me how her younger brother had threatened her, don't say anything bad about our brother. So it's, <laughs> it's really, really interesting how protective siblings Aww. are of their brothers and sisters. So I think 
certainly my own experiences help and help me to relate to siblings but there's also siblings also still hide things and they still protect their family yeah it's really lovely to to see and to research because it's, it's such a complicated area to research because families change so much and yeah yeah, it's a really interesting area. As you said, it's not just about the sibling relationship. It's about the family system, which, of course, is always very complex. So, mm-hmm. Nikita, how can we stay in touch with you? Are you on social media? How can people follow your work easily? So probably two main ways. So I do share all of my papers and any any work that I do on Twitter. So that's at Nikita Hayden. And then ResearchGate is also a great way to get access to my papers because I make sure that they're all on there when they're open access. And that's a good way for parents to get access to a lot of papers because most researchers will put them on ResearchGate. So if you just Google Nikita Hayden ResearchGate, you can follow me on that and then you can download my papers. And just don't be afraid to email me for my papers. At the moment, they're all open access, the sibling ones, but that might not be the case forever. So just don't ever be afraid to email me or indeed anyone to ask for their paper because researchers really want to share their work. So never be afraid to, I think, parents and schools to ask a researcher to send them a PDF because we're happy to. Brilliant. Thank you. And of course, that's why we are here as Tooled Up, because we're disseminating your work across our school populations and to parents in general. And of course, raising awareness for the fact that you're doing this fantastic research. So thank you so much for everything that you do in this area. Thank you for your time. And we look forward to keeping a pace with all of the great work that you're doing and all the current projects that you're working on, Nikita. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Bye bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.